If you turn with me uh, to the passage which today's uh, teaching is based, it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> Very familiar passage if you've grown up in the church, maybe even if you haven't. Uh, we're going to be preaching on the entire passage. It's a lengthy passage, verses 1 to 51, but I'm going to read from verse 32 uh, to 51. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And this is God's word. It's important for us to hear stories and narratives from scripture that prior to coming or rediscovering the gospel, I mean, for me, I was a Christian for, you know, at least I I came to faith in Jesus at a very young age. But when I came to rediscover the gospel, it was really important to come back to these old stories that I heard as a child because I realized over decades, in many ways, I was taught wrong. 
And those, it wasn't just nuances. Being taught wrong has shaped my view of God for a very, very long time. And maybe that'll be the case for some of you, maybe many of you. It's really important to rehear and reteach these stories. The narrative of David and Goliath, it's not just a story of antiquity. The Bible is filled with passages that point to Jesus Christ as the ultimate king. And, and David, he was a king. So he becomes the father of Jesus. It's from his line that Jesus is born. And so it's important to study the life of David. And this narrative, it takes place really just after David was anointed as king. And in a world as advanced as ours today, we are more anxious than ever. And so this narrative becomes more important than ever because it teaches us the key to real courage. So there are three things we're going to learn today. One, what it is. Two, how we often fake it. And lastly, how do you get it? What is real courage? How we often fake it? And lastly, then, how do you get it? First, we're going to look at what it is. I'm going to walk from the beginning of the passage. In verse 3, you have the Philistines on one hill, and uh, Israel is on the other hill. And between them is a valley. See, the Philistines and the Israelites, they were enemies. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, they were enemies. They were at war. And so they set up battle lines there, and this becomes then the valley of the shadow of death. And in verse 4, in this valley, Goliath shows up. And Goliath is massive. Goliath is giant. And in verse 10, Goliath challenges all of Israel. And he says, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, let us fight each other. And in verse 11, upon hearing Goliath's challenge, Saul is dismayed. It says that Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul is a king, and yet he's paralyzed with fear. The king is not kingly. The army is not kingly. Saul represents the army. The army represents the country. Saul is paralyzed with fear. The army standing on the battle lines. Verse 16, 40 days go by. The army is paralyzed with fear. By the way, whenever you see the number 40 in the Old Testament, 40 days, 40 nights, right? Um, it represents the condition of God's people, the condition of his church. In other words, that's us. 40 days, paralyzed with fear, on the battle line, every day, in fear of the giants in our lives. Fear teaches us that most often we are absolutely helpless. We are helpless. The text says that no one comes forward for 40 days. What is courage? What is courage? David in verse 32 says, let no one lose heart. Why? Because everyone, especially the king, they've lost heart. I mean, if you're king, if you're military, if they've lost heart, nation loses heart. David says, let no one lose heart. In Hebrew, that phrase is, let no one's heart fall away from him. Let no one's heart run away from him. In other words, let no one lose courage. Let no one be discouraged. 
In other words, if you do the wrong thing, if you do the wrong thing, if you do the selfish thing, if you run away, you go AWOL, you may be safe. But sometimes you do the right thing. Sometimes you do the unselfish thing, regardless of the outcome, whether or not it's safe. And that's courage. Ancient cultures knew you can't live without courage. Because there were diseases back then. There were wars back then. They were bloody. They were gruesome. Life was insecure. Life is absolutely dangerous. The world is a dangerous place. Courage is a kingly quality. But think about this. You still need courage because, as we all know, there's still disease. There are still wars. Life is still insecure. In fact, I would submit to you that life has not gotten any more secure. It's gotten even more dangerous. And so every time you let the pressures of your day, there are many kinds of pressures. Every time you let your circumstance or the pressures of the day lead to selfishness, driven by fear, and let that dictate a single moment, every single moment in your life, you, according to the Bible, are a coward. You're a coward. And most of us, if you're honest, we live out of fear. Now, some of you are saying, really? I mean, you're going to compare peer pressure and, and pressure, you know, work pressure, family pressures, the pressure to pay bills. You're going you're to compare that, pit that up against guns and wars and armies? Absolutely. You know why? Because the greatest nightmare in most of our lives in this room is not physical death, not right now. You're all young and beautiful. Christmas is coming around. We don't think about that. Oftentimes, the greatest nightmare in our lives is what? Losing your reputation, humiliation, what other people think of you. There are people in this room, and some of you are parents, people watching, some of you are parents, all of you, most of you are going to be parents at some point. There are people in this room who are so afraid of losing ground at work. You overwork and you neglect your child. You got that parental guilt because if you know anything about it, especially if young children, they go down early. And you come home, what, seven? And you might have an hour with your child. I know people that haven't seen their their kid hasn't seen them in like a year because they go down early and they come home late from work. That fear of losing your job, that fear of losing ground at work is more important than losing your child and his well-being. Some of you in this room, you can't, you absolutely cannot say no to your boyfriend. You absolutely cannot say no to your girlfriend. Your life is dictated dictated and managed by what somebody you are interested in is thinking about you, right? You hearing me? Some of you, are, your lives are dictated, your decisions are dictated by that. Your lives and your decisions are dictated by your friends and what they think of you. You hearing me over here? Some of you, your lives are dictated by your spouses, the urgencies of the day, what's, what's a, what could happen to your children. Some of you, I mean, you are, your decisions, uh, your looks 
and your diet determine decisions for you. Because your looks and your figure, that's what gets you accepted in life. That's what you believe. Or some of you, it's your books. You got to hit the books, right? So it could be a fear of aging, or it could be a fear of not being loved or accepted. It could be a a fear of not being accomplished. But whatever it is, it makes you self-absorbed. It makes you self-centered. And if you choose any of those things above your relationship with God, it's it's just killing your relationships. You're always going to feel helpless. You're always on the battle lines, paralyzed. Paralyzed with fear. Fear develops a type of myopia, spiritual myopia in your life. You become very, very nearsighted. So nearsighted, the only person that you see is yourself. And the only person you think of, really, is for yourself. That's Saul. That's Israel. That's us. The essence of courage. I mean, Tim Keller, uh, he's my favorite preacher. And um, he said something like this, right? The essence of courage is confronting your heart's greatest nightmare and still doing the right thing. That's what courage is. Now, there are ways we deal with fear, and it's a fake way of dealing with fear. I used to think that David was brave, and David saw thus he is the hero. But that's not how this passage really is set up. In verse 4, Goliath appears as the champion. Goliath is standing at the battle line for 40 days. The description of Goliath, this incredible specimen of a human being, he's depicted as a hero. So in a sense, Goliath and David are both heroes. They're both courageous. They're just diametrically opposed. And this is huge because growing up, when I studied this text, you know, I studied it like this. Goliath represents our fears, and David represents how we're supposed to handle our fears. And how do you handle your fears? You're supposed to fight them. You've got to confront them. Be like David. And how? You've got to trust God. You've got to obey God. That's going to make you humble. Be humble. Confront those giants in your life by being strong and being courageous. But look, in most ancient texts, you almost never see the details, the way the details are presented in this chapter. And there's a point to this. Writers, I mean, it's probably because there was no industry back then. Writers were very, very economical with their words. Everything was done manually. Their writing was done manually. And so they were very economical with their words. But in this ancient text, Goliath and his description, very detailed. In verses 4 to 7, his height in cubits. He had a bronze helmet. He wore a coat of skin. I mean, this man was a fighter. He, most authors would have just said, he's a warrior. He showed up. But here, the author goes into great detail. His height, his helmet, his scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. It's around 125 pounds. Some of you weigh 125 pounds. He's literally carrying that as his armor, bronze on his legs, bronze greaves, a bronze javelin, a spear shaft with an iron tip, an iron point. He's literally transitioning from bronze to iron, the Iron Age. Lots of detail. What does it all mean? 
What does all this mean? And Robert Alter, he's a professor at Berkeley. He's a Hebrew Bible scholar, probably one of the best Hebrew Bible scholars in our day. He says that this description of Goliath is unique in all of ancient Hebrew literature. And this is what he says. Goliath moves into action as a man of iron and bronze. In other words, he's a man of steel. An almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And this is a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. What is he saying? We are obsessed with Goliaths. Being Goliath, being like Goliath. We are obsessed with externals. Goliath is into himself. He's obsessed with himself. And that's why we're afraid. Because who in this room is ultimately like Goliath. There's a reason why the author wants to show him to you 2,000 years later. Who in this room is actually a Goliath? Goliath represents that natural, worldly way that we get courage. You gotta arm yourself. You gotta build yourself. You have to educate yourself. Get trained. How does Goliath gain courage? One, he relies on his gifts and his skills. Goliath is a physical specimen. He's tall. Saul was tall. The Bible says that Saul was like a head taller than everyone else. And Goliath is taller than him. And so Saul cowers. Everyone cowers. Saul bought in to the myth of the externals. In verse 33, King Saul says to David, you can't beat him. Look at him. I mean, you're young. And he is experienced, he is gifted, he is trained, he's skilled, he's born to do this. Secondly, he relies on his credentials. Goliath was trained since he was a boy, and David is just a boy. In verses 38 and 39, when Saul placed his tunic and the armor and the helmet over David, he wasn't used to it. And he says, I can't go in these. David is a boy, and he's poor, and he's got primitive technology. He's got a staff and a sling. Later on, Goliath sees David. He's insulted by this. You know why? Because a staff and a sling is used to ward off dogs. He says, am I a dog? In other words, I came to the battle line to fight you. I came prepared. I'm a champion. I came technologically prepared. I, came, I was trained in the art of battle, and I'm showing up, and you come at me not like I'm a peer even, even though I'm better than you. You come at me like I'm a dog. He's insulted. Number three, he relied on his advantages. In verse 42, he looked David over. He's sizing him up. He looks at David, and he says, man, he says, essentially, I am two times your size. I'm stronger than you. I have greater training than you. I'm more advanced than you. I have better technology than you. Goliath has absolutely no doubts. There is no evidence in this passage that he has any fear. He sees no danger. And that's the problem. Because this is how we deal with fears. This is how the world deals with fears. Arm yourself. Do whatever you can to avert bad circumstance. Do whatever you can to avert fear. How? Well, you got to build. 
You got to work. You got to accumulate. You got to arm yourself. Increase your potential. Increase every option. Get the most that you can. Squeeze the juice out of everything. Your education, your training, your job. In the 1950s, your job was considered your family. There was almost a symbiotic relationship between your employer and the employee. But today, it's all about our generation say, well, what can I get out of the job? It's not about what can the job get out of me, but the job, trust me, is trying to get everything out of you. They're going to squeeze every last ounce of your salary out of you, but you're also trying to squeeze every last ounce of credibility and training and skill and, and, uh, and potential out of that job, aren't we? That's what we do. There are people in this room. All of us, first of all, have real fears. And the way that you deal with your fear, fears is what? Like life, you hide it. You cover over it with armor. You protect your ego by emphasizing your strengths and your gifts. If I was a fly on the wall and and was present in every one of your dates, your first dates, I would imagine that most people act like Goliath, obsessed with the externals and sharing your resume, the things that make you great by covering over weak character with strong competencies. I'm going to give you a spoiler here. You're not that special. You're not that special. And yet that's how we rid ourselves of fears. But the problem is, one, Goliath is blind to the one thing that he needed to win, the one thing that he needed to survive, a 360-degree view of reality. There was a danger. You see, David, he was aware of the danger. He knew because of who he was, the weakness and the vulnerability and the lack of experience and the lack of training, he's very well aware of the danger that he's walking into. He's walking into the valley of death. What does fear do? Real fear, though it may be disproportionate, though it may be uh, not realizable, I mean, that's what makes a nightmare is that it's not real, but it conjures up fears, but it wakes you up to reality. Everyone has a Goliath-like fear, a Goliath-sized fear that, that makes up, that constitutes their greatest nightmare. We often try to battle those things by being like Goliath. We're just going to build I'm just going to keep getting promoted. I'm going to work hard. It doesn't matter who I step on. That's part of, it's the art of war, right? There's not a single business person in this room that hasn't talked about Sun Tzu's art of war. It's the worst cliche in the history of business, right? And yet we do that. We want to step over other people, step, you know, just to get ahead, promotions, bonuses, salaries. And that's what we tout because that's what your armor is. Those things that you take pride in in your life, it could be small. I mean, it starts very, very young. The thing is, those things that you tout, that you're proud of in your life, think about any five things that come to mind about things that you, in your heart you know you're proud of. That's your armor. Those are the things that you arm yourself with. 
It could be your 401k, retirement savings, crypto. There is the armor. Because if I just have these things, see, the fear creates a myopia. The myopia makes you very selfish. And what it does is it challenges you, moves you into saying, you start to materialize those fears into things. The way that I deal with my fear, the way that I deal with my inadequacy, the way that I deal with my insecurity is not to make myself vulnerable. I mean, that's like the counterintuitive thing to do because that exposes my fear and my vulnerability and my inadequacy and my insecurity. Rather than exposing it and working with people and bringing it into a, a, a life-giving path or journey that's going to help me rid fear, what we do is we hide our fears. And we cover over it with a good salary, with good looks. Some of us have very biting humors because that's a way when you're sarcastic, you can make, you're good at making fun of other people. That's another way of hiding over, covering over your inadequacies and your fears. I mean, I was out there with the best of them. Some of us, you know, we say, if we're married, then I will be protected from my fear of loneliness. Some of us just can't stand being alone. And so you need to get married because that's your armor. For some of us, it's worthlessness. That sense of self-worth that is just depressed. So if I can just have a good family, or if I can have just good kids, if I can raise good kids, then I will have self-worth. People will see that I've raised my kids well, and they will be my legacy, we say. It's that fear of being worthless. For some of us, it's meaninglessness. I can't stand a job that has no meaning. I can't stand being in a, in a career that is meaningless. I need a cause, something to fight for. And so what we do is we hop around and fight the, find the right thing that's going to give us meaning. You see that? You're not acting out of courage. You're actually acting out of fear. That kind of courage is never going to help you do the right thing amidst pressure. Putting courage in these kind of things like a, like a marriage or a family, your career, your job, these things will extort you. They will rob you of courage. Because you're going to be, the fear creates myopia. The myopia causes you to materialize fears into something, things that you work and work and work for. You know why? Because if these things are going to be the things that are going to help you feel a sense of worth or give you, if these are the things that are going to give you courage, then I've got to protect them. I have to maintain them. In order to protect and maintain it, I've got to fight for it. I've got to work for it. I've got to defend it and justify it. Oh, and we get very, very good. Even around our friends, we like to con our friends into making it seem spiritual, right? And how this is a good thing. We love doing that, especially in the church. It's another layer. It's another layer of armor we need to put in to defend ourselves from people, to keep people from actually seeing into the soul. When you actually need people to see into the soul, you won't survive without people looking into your soul. We're going to work to maintain and protect these things because we're so desperately afraid of losing them. So what happens? The very thing that has been materialized so you can avert fear actually increases your fear. You have more fear. Because if I were to now lose this material thing, this tangible thing, 
Or if this thing, if I were to disappoint this thing, or if I were to, it were to disappoint me, and it will because it's also broken. It's, we live in a broken world. We live around sinful people and among sinful people. Then I will lose myself. Then you're just a slave. Now you're just working. You're just a slave to your fears. Where do you find real courage if your marriage is not going to be sufficient to do that? Where are you going to find courage when your wealth is not going to be enough to, it's not going to be sufficient for you? Where are you going to find real courage when your reputation is insufficient to support that? You see, on one hand, you don't want to disengage from, from your fears because then, like Goliath, you could become blind to reality. When you actually need reality to make decisions, to act. But on the other hand, you need something that's going to be bigger, bigger than your fears, overwhelm your fears to empower you to make the right decisions. Where did David get that courage? In verses 45 to 47, he says, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Where did he get that? Now, I grew up being taught, if you have faith like David, then God will be present in your life. God's going to reward you. You can handle the giants in your life, you know, because just obey. Just trust God. Be humble. But you see, that's just the religious version of Goliath. That's just the religious version of Goliath's courage. You see, if you're looking at yourself and you're saying, if I just trust God, if I just obey God, then God's going to help me. Then God's going to protect me. That's just another armor. You're just using him as armor. You're going to God for things instead of going to God for God himself. You're still trying to be like David, in a sense, but you're actually becoming more like Goliath. That's why just obeying is actually going to turn you away from God a lot of times. You know why? Because what's going to happen is you're going to believe that lie that if I just trust God, if I just obey God, he will protect me. He will help me withstand and overcome these giants, and you can't. You can't on your own. You still think you're David. You can't, and God has failed you. We have generations of people who've left the church because they believed in that lie. Look at Jesus. I mean, I'll tell you one truth. That'll just knock that lie out of the park, okay? Look at Jesus, the most obedient, trusting, loving, gracious, but again, the most obedient person and trusting person in God. He prayed, he obeyed, he trusted, he was faithful. Did everything go well for him? Did God protect him? No! He got the cross. He died. So the lesson just can't, it can't just be trust God and God will protect you. Then how do you get it? How do you get real courage? One, you have to come to grips with the reality that we are not David in this passage. We are not like David in this passage. We are the cowards. We are Saul. We are the paralyzed army. And so it's not about us going into the valley to confront the giants. We need somebody to rescue us. We need somebody to go into the valley for us. We need someone who's going to go into the valley of the shadow of death for us. We're not like David. We need a David. One, David was weak. David was young. David was inexperienced and untrained. He refuses to armor. But 
His victory doesn't come in spite of his weakness. David wins. David is victorious because he's weak. God, do you know God in David's weakness? David lacked credentials, but God was training him himself. So he approaches Saul and he says this. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Where did David get that courage? Since he was a child, God has been training him. He killed bears and lions. Things that were much larger than himself. So by the time he got to Goliath, he was like, really? I killed a lion. I killed a bear. We act kingly often because we're weak. We try to act kingly because we're weak. But David, he was weak because he was kingly. He didn't have to rely on the, the externals. He didn't have to. He had no education. He had no training. He wasn't relying on them. He was brought up. God had raised him not relying on those things. God had raised him. It doesn't mean it wasn't intelligent. It doesn't mean it wasn't wise. I mean, I don't know. He just learned not to rely on them. He learned not to rely on his strengths. He learned not to rely on his externals. He learned not to rely on his credentials. He says, the Lord who delivered me, he recognized. He somehow strategically fought things much larger than him and recognized that it was God who redeemed him. He grew a deeper confidence and trust that gave him wisdom and courage, and you need those things when you're in danger. But the key here in this text is that David was Israel's representative. He was their substitute. Goliath says in verses 8 to 9, choose a man. Have him come down to me, he says. In ancient times, you chose one man. In the ancient wars, they were bloody and gruesome. They ran towards each other in the battle lines. You've seen some of these movies. If you've seen movies like Braveheart or, or Gladiator, I mean, they were just gruesome. They just run towards each other and just slicing and just chopping each other up, right? And so there's an economic way to fight a war. You can fight like that, which is very uneconomical, but why not just take the entire army as a slave by taking your best man and have the two best men fight each other on opposite sides? In ancient times, you chose one man. That person was your champion. He was the legal representative the head of the entire army and the head then of the nation. He was your strength. He was your power, the power of the entire army. In other words, David was going into the valley of death as Israel's best person, best man, not just fighting for them, but fighting as them. He was their head. That's why Goliath says, if he kills me, we become your subjects. You can take us as your slaves. So that means if David has courage, the army has courage, the nation has courage. 
If David's going into the valley, then the army has gone into the valley. If David loses, then the nation loses. But if David wins, the nation wins. Whatever happens to David is transferred to the rest of his people. The actual technical term for that is imputed. Very important. Why? Because the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says this. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That word author is a very particular Greek word, archegos. And that word perfecter is another Greek word that's, 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 that means teleoten. What is an archegos? Your arch ego. An arch rival is what? It's the best version of your enemy. And so the arch ego is the best version of yourself, the greatest version of yourself. And that word perfecter, teleoten, it means finisher. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The greatest representative of yourself who finished it. The finisher of your faith. He is where your faith points. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The archegos and teleoten of our faith. That means that Jesus Christ is our champion. The way David was to Israel, Jesus is to us. Jesus is our forensic representative. He is our legal representative. And he not only fought the battle, he won the battle. Jesus Christ is the ultimate David. David is just the father of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus became weak. Jesus became vulnerable. Jesus emptied himself of his armor. He could have come armed. He could have come on a throne. He could have come on a chariot, but he came in a manger. That's what Christmas is about. The king who comes weak. And yet he didn't save us despite his weakness. He saved us through that weakness. He saved us. He became killable, and thus he died. And that became our salvation. He didn't save us from physical death, but from eternal death. The only death that can actually truly ruin you. He didn't rescue us from physical slavery, but our slavery to sin. And he didn't save us at the risk of his life. He saved us at the cost of his life. David went into the valley of death. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate valley. And he won through his weakness. And he was crucified. And he died. And he was buried. And he paid the penalty for our sins. What's your greatest nightmare? Losing the love of your life? losing your reputation, losing your wealth, this wealth that you work so hard for and desperately for, losing your life. You face any trial, it's like a giant. And if you face it on your own, you're saying, if I just lose these things, if I lose these things, I will lose my joy. It's like losing my life. I'm in hell. But look, look how hard you are working and working and working like a slave to finish this on your own. What you're actually doing is you're still trying to build that armor to protect yourself. You're always facing the valley of the shadow of death alone 
without any real armor, which is why we have insecurity, which is why we feel so inadequate. It's why we lose. We're a slave. But when you look at Jesus Christ at Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He's overwhelmed. Why? Because there, you know what he was doing? In that moment, he was staring down the valley of the shadow of death. He was staring down the valley, the valley that he must tread. That was his greatest nightmare, the cross, not just because of the physical pain, but it was the separation from God, that legal separation from God, God abandoning him. Because to be separated from God is what? To be in hell. He was staring down at the valley of death. That was his hell. And it just absolutely overwhelmed him, and he's praying. And you know what he prayed? Not my will, yours be done. In other words, in the most trying circumstances in his life, he did the right thing. He demonstrated courage. He obeyed. And he went to the cross, and on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God is pouring out on him. And there he had lost the Father. He had lost God. That was his greatest nightmare. He had been totally defeated, total separation from God. Ultimate slavery. And yet on the cross, when it was over, he said, it's finished. It is finished. That word finished, it's the same word, author and perfecter. In other words, what he's saying is the war is now over. I fought the fight. I paid the price. That's why he had to die. He finished it. He is the author and perfecter. He is the arch ego and the finisher. He is our champion. And so Jesus faced a gigantic wrath of God, the ultimate Goliath, and he defeated death on the cross as our substitute. And it's because he went into the valley, we went into the valley. And because he died, we died. And because he rose again, we rose again. And so because he won, we won. Union. Union with Christ. And because he is courageous, the Holy Spirit living in you, he's not just your conscience. He's not just that nagging dude, you know, come on, just do the right thing, you know, that's what he's doing. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead as the power of God in you. You can be courageous. You ever pray for courage? We pray for the circumstance. How about you pray for courage? How about you pray for humility and wisdom and courage? How do you get it? What sustained Jesus on the cross? The author in Hebrews 13 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the arch ego and the finisher, the end point that it is finished of our faith, who for what? Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus at Gethsemane, he's overwhelmed to the point of death. Then how did he do it? 
Why did he do it? He had joy. Jesus wasn't like, no, no, don't, don't let me go to the cross. You don't see any passages like that because it wasn't. That's not what happened. He went. He went. He went and he was glad to go. He was glad to go as our substitute. He had joy. What was the joy that made it all worth it? You are that joy. To the end, Jesus is trusting God's promises and he's seeing his people redeemed, rescued, justified, and safe. That was his joy. And if you trust that, to the degree that you trust that, that you are Christ's joy, that you are Christ's treasure, he becomes your joy and Christmas becomes your treasure. You see that? Then you can have courage in the presence of any trouble. You can face all those minor nightmares, the smaller nightmares in your life, no matter how big they are to you, compared to the ultimate nightmare that Jesus faced on the cross and endured and, and won over. You can face all of your fears with courage because you have ultimate love and worth. You have the ultimate reputation. You have ultimate meaning. You have ultimate approval. You have it in union with Jesus because he obeyed perfectly, you obeyed. And because he paid the price, you paid the price. And because he is exalted, you are exalted. You see that? In the book of 2 Kings, you have the prophet Elisha and his servant. They're afraid because they're surrounded by uh, an enemy army. And Elisha, you know, he, you know, and the servant is freaking out. And Elisha answers, don't be afraid. And he prays. And he prays, open his eyes, Lord. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, then the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and when he looked, he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You may be blind to everything that God is doing, but God is on the move, and he is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. Take heart. Be courageous. Let's pray.